to Matthew chapter 7. As we continue our study through the, the gospel of Matthew, the first gospel, if you're here visiting and unfamiliar, it's the first book of the New Testament. As you turn in your Bible, Matthew chapter 7. You know, I was thinking this week as I studied for the passage, I was reminded of how social media has in many ways become kind of this buffet course of an opportunity for us to scroll through and whet our appetite, satisfy our appetite for judgmental thoughts and glances and opinions. We can just scroll right through and the appetite we tend to have for criticism and and harshness just comes out and is quenched as we scroll through and and look at pictures and see people's opinions and posts as kind of this smorgasbord of temptation for us to do that. It's not that I am necessarily coming just to condemn social media, but I think we need to recognize the temptation that is before us as we scroll through whatever our social media preference platform is. And we scroll through and look at it, there's certainly a temptation to fall into a, a hypercriticism, a harshness, a very opinionated judgment of how people are living and what people are doing. Leon Morris, in his commentary on Matthew, wrote this regarding Matthew 7, 1 through 6. He says, Jesus is drawing attention to a curious feature of the human race in which a profound ignorance of oneself is so often combined with an arrogant presumption of knowledge about others, especially about their faults. Well, it was a, a pretty astute observation, an accurate observation of where we fall many times. That we as humans have the ability to look beyond ourselves at the faults of others. We seem to be very good at that. Or at least I'll say I seem to be very good at that. Hey, I won't lump you into that this morning. And so Jesus confronts this this morning in Matthew chapter 7 and has a important word for us to hear. Let's read that together this morning. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I believe this, this passage deals with two tendencies in our lives, two, two sinful tendencies of the flesh that we can, can really gravitate towards. The, the first one is this, is that, that we tend to be quick to judge others based on our opinions and convictions instead of upon the Word of God. But we tend to look, and, and if it's something that we're very, we hold a, a very strong opinion about or we're really convicted about in this area, then we tend to hold other people to that standard and judge them according to those things. The second tendency we tend to have 
is that we find it easy to see the faults of those around us, but really difficult to see our own. We mentioned that a few moments ago. That we're very quick to see where other people are in error. We're very quick to see where other people are struggling or where they sin or where they rebel or where they're deceived. But yet we tend to walk in a way that is almost ignorant of the fact that we may also have our own blind spots, our own failings, our own sin. So Jesus confronts both of these problems in our lives. Now, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged is probably one of the most quoted verses of our day, but often the most abused and misunderstood verses of our day. It is taken out of context constantly by, by believers and unbelievers alike who would look and say, hey, 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 don't, don't judge me. I mean, even, even Jesus said, don't judge lest you be judged. So don't, don't go judging me. And it's this kind of this banner that gets waved for, I would say, what what I would say is the false tolerance movement. Not a true tolerance, but, but one that just says, hey, stop judging me. And, and it's actually an, an effort to promote the idea that I can do whatever I want to. You don't have a right to judge me. And so I'm just going to live however I want to live. And what's missed in that is that to declare the truth is not viewed, is not to be viewed as judgmental. Truth is truth, and it must be told. It must be projected. We can't just say, oh, 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 okay, so I don't want to judge you, so I'm not going to tell you the truth. That, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. But the argument that we hear is this, is that, that Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged as well, so you need to just stop judging me. But the reality is this, is that just presenting that as an argument and said, hey, don't judge me, because Jesus said that if you judge me, you're going to be judged too. Just presenting that in that way is a twisting of Scripture. It's a twisting of Scripture. And lest I, or, or, or shouldn't I remind you this morning that that is a simple scheme of Satan. If you're in the engagement project, right, in the engagement project a couple weeks ago, the, uh, Dale Tackett talked about how, how we need to be aware and understand the schemes of Satan. Now, one of the classic schemes of Satan is what? That he, he twists the Scripture. That he brings question to the scripture. He takes the scripture out of context. You remember in Genesis 3, right, in the fall, what does Satan do? He brings question to the, the word of God, the command of God. Did, did God really say this? Did he really say that? And then what does he do in, in Matthew 4 when we come to the temptation of Christ? Oh, if you are the son of God, he presents the temptation and he says what? For it is written. And he takes scripture and he takes it out of context. And that's what happens here in our day. People take it out of context and say, hey, judge not that you be not judged. Don't judge me. You can't judge me. You have no right, no place to judge me. It's a twisting of scripture. It's taking it out of context. So first what I want us to do is I want us to consider what does Jesus mean here? What does he mean? If we're living in a day in which the idea is that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and his truth is his truth and you can't tell me what truth is because truth is relative. It's true. It's, it's different for every individual. If we live in that day, how do, we, how do we understand judge not that you not be judged? Because we read this and we have to read this knowing that the idea that truth is relative is wrong. It's wrong. There is truth. There is indeed uh, absolute truth. There is indeed one truth that conforms to reality. So what does he mean here? Well, 
Jesus is dealing with an, an unwarranted, uh, an ungodly judgment here. The, the word there that's translated to judge in your, in your text, it, it's understood, it, it can be understood depending on the context, to, to judge, to discern, to condemn, or even a, a kind of a judicial judgment, to judge judiciously. Context is key, uh, as it is with every language. Every language on earth, context is key. I mean, you know that certainly by going through English class, right? English class can greatly determine the meaning of a word and how it's used and how you understand it. It's the same here. So we look here and we look at the context. We see that Jesus is dealing with this hypocritical judgment of others. And we just read a few verses down. What does he say in verse 5? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we, we see right here contextually that Jesus is not saying that you should never judge. You should never show uh, discernment. You should never look and evaluate and help someone else out in their sin. He's not saying that right here in the context. We see throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount that that's not the case. What we do see is we see that Jesus is, is constantly in the Sermon on the Mount calling us to look at our heart, to examine our heart. What is our motive? What lies underneath what we do? You see, this is an, an admonition to avoid this harsh judgmentalism, this hyper-criticism. It is not a teaching. This is important. It is not a teaching from Jesus that we should walk around blind to what is good as opposed to what is evil. It is not this admonition that we should walk around blind to what is sin versus what is righteous or what is right versus wrong. He's not saying, hey, you just need to walk around and just not be aware of those things. Because throughout Scripture, this is not the case. We see Jesus teaching what we saw there in verse 5. But we read later on, we see in Matthew 7, 15 to 20, that we, we read that a tree is known by what? Its fruit. A tree is known by its fruit. Now, if you never pass judgment, if you never show discernment, how in the world can you know the fruit? If I would say a tree is known by fruit, how, how can I say that a fruit is good or bad if I'm just to walk around and blindly and never exercise any kind of, of judgment? Or what about Matthew 18? Remember Matthew 18, 15 to 17, where, where Jesus teaches us to confront the, the one in sin, right? To exert or to enact church discipline. How am I supposed to do that if I don't look out and see this is wrong, this is right, this is godly, this is ungodly? We see by both instruction and example in Scripture that we are to practice discernment. We are to judge between what is right and wrong, what is godly, what is ungodly. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13, at the end of a chapter where he's dealing with sin in the church in Corinth, he says this, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you, Paul says. We are to judge those inside the church. Colossians 2, verse 8, we, he, we read this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, how in the world are we supposed to do that if we don't exercise discernment, if we don't judge what is right and wrong, if we don't judge what is godly and ungodly, true and untrue? We have to have that ability. We have to practice discernment. We have to judge what is right and wrong. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 22, Paul writes, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every type of evil. How, again, how are we going to do that? 
How are we going to test everything and hold fast to what's good and abstain from what's evil if we never exercise discernment? We never look out and say, this is right, this is wrong. This is of God. This is not of God. We are to practice that. Hebrews 5.14. We read this, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by what? Constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We are to use our mind. We are to look and to see what is good, what is evil. 1 John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We see throughout Scripture that we are taught both by example, we see it exemplified in Scripture, and we're taught by instruction, a command to test, to discern what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong, what is sinful, what is righteous. So it's not an idea that Jesus is saying here, listen, you just need to live blind to that. Just don't judge. Just walk out. And, and you see somebody living what you would say to sin. Just, hey, that's okay. That's their life. Just let them go about. Let them be happy. Heaven forbid you upset them. Heaven forbid you step on their toes. <laughs> don't do it. No. That's not what this is. It's not what it is. He's speaking against a harsh, hypocritical, hypercritical judgment. See, the, the biblical take on judgment, if you think back, and some of you may remember, some of you were here, we studied through Romans, we came to Romans chapter 14, we came across the same topic, the same, uh, the same idea of that we're not to just judge others based on our convictions. And that day, I gave you three points, three understanding, three principles, truths about biblical judgment, godly judgment. I'm just going to give them to you quickly again today so you have it in this context. Here's the biblical teaching on judgment. Number one is that we are not to judge unbelievers. It is not our place to judge unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13, Paul says, listen, that's not my place. It's not our, our role, our place to judge unbelievers. That's God's place. God has judged them. And God will judge them. Our role, our calling is to share the gospel, right? To be the salt and the light. Our role is to present the gospel, to stand for truth, right? But we're not here to cast judgment upon them. We do certainly stand for truth. It's not that we, again, go, hey, I'm just going to bow down and your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. We still stand for truth, but we're not doing so casting stones and judgment at them. Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 5. We already read it. The second thing, though, is we are to judge fellow believers. Scripture talks about we are to judge fellow believers. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. And again, 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13. We are indeed to judge fellow believers. And the third point we think about biblical judgment is that we are to judge sin. We are to judge sin, not convictions. Galatians 6, 1 teaches us this. Matthew, again, 18. Well, how, do, how, do we, how do we tell the difference between convictions and sin? Well, we ask a simple question. Is it in the Word of God? Does the Word teach us that? Does the Word instruct us in that? See, where the, where the Word of God speaks, we stand firm. Where it's silent, we show grace, we show understanding, we show mercy, we show wisdom. In those areas, we stand firm on the, God of word, on the Word of God. And he says there at the end of verse 2, he says, judge not, why? That you be not judged. See, Jesus is blunt with the outcome of the critical spirit. It invites others to view you the same. It invites others' criticism towards you. 
A lack of grace and a lack of charity in our lives invites a lack of grace and a lack of charity from others towards us. It's the old proverb that those who live in a glass house should not throw stones. Again, Leon Morris speaks to it. He says to be sharply critical of others is to invite others to be sharply critical of you. How do we interact? How do we project that upon others is the way it will be upon us. And so we come away with two really important distinctions when he says this, judge not lest you be judged. There's two important distinctions we need to make. Number one is there's a difference between making judgments and being judgmental. There's a difference there. Making judgments is meaning exercising discernment between what is right and wrong, between what is godly and ungodly, between what is righteous and what is sinful. We are indeed to do that. That's different from being judgmental, assuming that we know heart motives, assuming that we know what lies at the, the, in someone's agenda, or holding others to our convictions, to our standards. That would lead us to be judgmental. The second distinction that we need to understand and make is, is the difference between accountability and censoriousness. Accountability and censoriousness. Accountability is, is the idea of holding others to the standard of Christ that we're all called to walk according to. We, we have to understand that that is accountability, that we should indeed hold one another accountable. You should hold me accountable. I should hold you accountable to walk according to the gospel for the glory of God. That's different than this censoriousness, a critical spirit that finds something wrong in everything. That we just look out and we're critical and every move someone makes, we're constantly critical. We're just waiting and, and like a lion ready to pounce and go, oh, if he does anything wrong, I'm all over that. I'm going to address that. Right? There's just constant harshness and criticalness seeking to pass judgment, perhaps judgmentalism on another. Important distinctions we need to make. Now, if we're going to walk in godliness in this area, right, if we're going to walk in biblical judgment, then we need to know what our measuring tool is. That's what Jesus gives us in verse 2. He he talks about the importance of the the right measuring tool. If if I decide, you know, I'm going to build a porch, and, and I go out there, and a couple of you come over to help me build my back porch, and and I'm going to cut. I like to use my saw, and I'm good at cutting. It's used to yell the measurements. And you say, all right, the first one's 25 feet long. All right. And so I go, and you've measured it. It's 25 feet long. And I get my uh, tape measure out that, that is based on the metric system, and I measure out to 25, and I cut it. And then I bring it to you, and, and then you say, all right, it's, the next one's 23, and I do the same thing. And I bring all these pieces to you, and we lay them down, and you go... Did you not cut it 25 feet? Oh, yeah. I cut it right at 25 feet. No, no. It doesn't matter, though. I used a metric measuring tape. Really? Right? The, the, the measuring tool that you use is important in construction, and it's important in exercising right judgment among the body of Christ. If you use the wrong measuring stick, you're going to leave yourself in a world of trouble. You're going to cause a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of problems among the people of God. We have to make sure we're using the right measuring tool. So this should bring out two questions to us. We think about this whole idea of what are we using? Are we using the correct measuring tool? Here's the first question is, 
as, as I look at people around me, what measuring tool, what measure am I using? So as I look and, and I interact with you as a pastor, and I seek to encourage you and spur you on, what, what measuring tool am I using in that? Am I, am I using my own opinions and my convictions that quite honestly could shift time to time, right? Could even shift depending on the news I watched that morning. I mean, it, it could be shifting from day to day. Or am I using the Word of God that I know is true? Listen, listen to Romans 14. We talked about that earlier. Romans 14, verse 10 to 12. Here's an example of this. When we think about what measuring tool are we looking at. You can, you can read this contextually, verse uh, 14. I mean, sorry, verse 1 to 12 in Romans 14. Or you can go back and into our sermon ar- archives and hear the whole sermon on this passage. But Romans 14, verses 10 to 12, Paul says this. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, what what Paul's dealing here with is he's rebuking the Romans for passing judgment on one another based on their own personal convictions. He's rebuking them for this. He's saying, listen, you you can't judge one another based on your convictions. It's great. He's not saying don't be convicted about anything. He's not saying don't be passionate about anything, but he's saying to be careful and make sure that what you're passionate about is not then forced upon others and say, hey, if I'm passionate about this and I'm convicted about this in my own life, then you better be convicted about it too. And if you're not, then you're living in sin, buddy. And this may be an area that that is gray. It's an area that is something I'm really passionate and convicted about that, that you may not be and that your take on it and my take on it, the way we handle it, neither one is, is in sin. It, neither one is opposed to the Word of God. And Paul says, don't do that. Why are you passing judgment on others in matters of conviction? And he reminds them of what? What's his reminder? Don't forget that one day you all, we all will stand before the Lord, that he will judge us all in that day. And we have to remember that, that our convictions come before the Lord. And so ultimately what we learn here in Romans 14 is that we judge based on the measure that God has given us, His Word. His Word. That's what we are to judge according to. To base our judgment of others on our convictions and opinions is like building a house with a measuring tape that we create each day for the job. If we just go about and we judge each other based on what we're convicted about, then it essentially would be like, hey, we're going to build the house today with this measuring tape that I've marked off some lines on, and we're going to go according to this. Well, tomorrow, let's erase those and put new lines on there, and let's build it. The, the, the measure is changing day to day, and it's going to be a disaster. That's why we have to have the Word of God as our measure. It is our standard. It is our tool to use in judging. Second question that this leads us to is this. Are you applying the same measure to yourself as you are to others? Are you applying the same measure to yourself as you are to others? Do you remember in, in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12, the, the, is, this is happening just after David's sin with Bathsheba. He's convi- committed this grievous sin, Right? And many people would look at his sin and seeing that, that he has probably disobeyed all of the commandments of the Lord in this one act. And so he's done this and he's gone about his life. Well, well, God sends Nathan to confront him. 
And here's just part of it, but in, in 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 1, we read, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, that's important just to note that, that Nathan is about to judge David in this instance. He's about to call him to holiness. This wasn't just his idea, his opinion. God sent him to do it. God sent him to do it. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and he grew up with him, with his children. They used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. If you don't understand what happened, he just took that little lamb that was lying in his arms and eating of his own food, and he, the, the poor man's, and he killed it, okay? He killed it, sacrificed it, fed it to the traveler. So what is David's response? And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Oh, David, oh man, he's quick to judge, isn't he? He's ready. He's thinking clearly. He's thinking rightly, even. Nathan said to David, you are the man. <laughs> That's you. That's you, David. Like, you have done this. You're thinking clearly about that instant. You're so quick to see that. You're so quick to view that in another. Look in the mirror. Look at yourself. Are you applying the same measure to yourself as you are to others? It's an important question. We have to look at ourselves. We can't just walk around. We have to be, be careful being those who walk around waving our Bible at someone else and saying, hey, you better do this. You better live according to this. Do you know what God's word says here? And all the while we're doing that and we're ignorant of that in our own lives. We're not sitting down before the word and saying, God, search my heart and know me. Show me if there's any unrighteous, unholy way within me. And Jesus goes on to just give two illustrations to make sure we get this, right? Two illustrations. The first illustration is eyes without, with specks as opposed to eyes with logs, Right? Eyes with specs as opposed to eyes of law. Verses 3 to 5. The problem he's dealing with here is this hypocritical judgment. The, the question he asks is, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? I mean, you, you've got this measure and you're applying it to everyone else, but you're unaware. You're unaware. Why do you do that? Well, I can, I can give a pretty good answer to that personally. I don't know if you can, but it's a whole lot easier for me to see your problems than mine. And it's much more fun. Right? I would much rather look and see the things you struggle with. Right? I don't really like to look in the mirror. I don't like to be aware of what I'm struggling with. It's a lot easier just to go, mm, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I'd be all right. But man, do you see what he's doing? I mean, that's bad. Woo! I'm glad I'm not like him. Right? That's, that's one reason. We would much rather talk about their sin, your sin, his sin, her sin, as opposed to my sin. We find it a lot easier, a lot easier to go, you know, you've got sawdust in your eye. 
And sawdust in your eye is a bad thing. I had it yesterday morning when we did mulch. I guess it wasn't sawdust, it was some kind of dirt. It was very uncomfortable. It should be dealt with. But we tend to ignore that in others. And we're walking around with this six by six beam sticking out of our eye. And all the while we're casting judgment and we're knocking brothers and sisters over. <laughs> you know? Just laying them out. It's a problem. The second, second example he gives, he, so he gives that one, why do, you, why do you seek to deal with the speck in another's eye when you have a log in yours? Wake up, look in the mirror. The second illustration he gives is in verse 6. The idea of discerning dogs and pigs. What in the world does this mean? Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs? Let's say trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What are we to do with that? What does that verse mean? Jesus is essentially giving a counterbalance to what's preceded. See, he's talked about not being harsh, not being hypercritical. Not walking around and looking for all the sawdust and getting rid of all the sawdust while you're unconcerned about your own log in your eye. He's saying, hey, listen, don't do that. But instead, deal first with your own problems. Deal first with your own sin. And then you can see clearly. Then you can come and you can address what's going on in the life of a brother. And you should indeed do that. And so now he comes and he, he gives us counterbalance. Right? We're not to be unfairly judgmental or overly judgmental or hypercritical. That doesn't mean that we're not to be discerning and discriminate people. We still have to exercise discernment. We still need to look out and say, hey, this is right, this is wrong, what we talked about earlier. When he talks about that what is holy is, is something that is set apart for the Lord. When he talks about dogs and pigs, it's that which is unclean, that which is considered unclean or ungodly. It's to, to practice discrimination, to practice and, and not this idea of discrimination in our land. I'm not calling you to do that. But it is the idea of understanding what is right and what is wrong. What is good, what is bad, what is godly, what is ungodly. The point is that we are not to just walk around and blindly offer that which is holy and set apart for the Lord to those who are living in sin. Now, what does this mean exactly? What does it apply to? What is exactly is he saying? Scholars have basically put forward two options for what this might be. The first option that some scholars, especially early on, the early church put forward is the Lord's Supper. That as we come in a few moments to partake in the Lord's Supper, we should not offer that to what is holy, what is set apart for the Lord. We should not offer that to those who are ungodly, those who are living in sin. And that's certainly, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 11. That certainly could, could be a possibility. The, the other option is the gospel. That Jesus would be talking about the gospel, that, that we should be able to discern when it's time to move on, so to speak, in sharing the gospel. When, when it's time to, to, to step aside and say, you know what, it's not going well. These, this person is rejecting it. They're hostile towards it. They're mocking. They're ridiculing. They're profaning the name of the Lord. I've, time, I've tried time and time and time again. I'm going to move on and I'm going to share the gospel with them. It's essentially what Jesus says in Matthew 10. Do you remember when he sets, sends out the disciples? Matthew 10, verse 5 through 16, he sends out the disciples to the towns to do evangelism. And what does he say if they do not receive him? Shake the dust off your feet 
and move on. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. I, I think the, the Lord's use of dogs and pigs is important here. And we think about what does it mean? His use of dogs and pigs is important. Because we don't see in Scripture God's people being described as dogs and pigs. We just don't see that. In Scripture, we see dogs and pigs used as illustrations. It's talking about those who are not of the people of God. So Proverbs 26, 11 talks about a, 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 a fool who does not, uh, or that just returns to his folly over and over and over again. It talks about that individual being like a dog who returns to his vomit. And then in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, that proverb is quoted in talking about those who would hear the gospel and reject it. They, they've understood it. They've heard it. They've dialogued about it. They've sat under teaching and continue to reject it. He talks about them being as though they were dogs because they turn away and despise it. We see a, a couple examples, I think, that would affirm this as well. We talked about Matthew 10, the Lord teaching that there's a time to move on though, from those who have blatantly, even aggressively reject the gospel. See that in Matthew 10? We see also in Acts 13, 44 to 51, you can read that later. But in Acts 13, the Jews in Antioch, they reject Paul and Silas. So the word of God says that Paul and Silas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. In Acts 18, 5 to 6, the gospel was rejected and opposed by the Jews in the synagogue at Corinth. And so there, the word of God says that Paul shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then in Acts 28, we read a similar account. The Jews in Rome, this is Acts 28, 17 to 28, the Jews in Rome rejected the gospel. So Paul said, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. There came times in Scripture, in Jesus' ministry, in the ministry of the apostles, where they made a difficult decision to move on. There were other people who needed to hear the gospel. It, it does not mean, let me say this, it does not mean that we treat people with contempt. It does not mean that we treat unbelievers with unkindness. It doesn't mean that we show hatred to them just because someone would show hatred or contempt towards the gospel. It does not mean that we don't evangelize unbelievers. It does not mean that we don't do missions. We absolutely do missions. We absolutely take the gospel to unbelievers. We absolutely take the gospel to those who would be hostile towards it. We all sitting here at one point were hostile towards the gospel, living according to our own means. What it means is there comes a time when we have to be discerning and know when it's time to shake the dust of our, off our feet and move on to minister to those who need the gospel, who may receive it. Instead of staying in one place, taking this hostile rejection and casting what is valuable towards those who destroy it and trample upon it and desecrate it. It's a hard moment, but it's a time in which the Lord would say and show to move on. So when we think about this, I just want to leave you with two thoughts. When we think about this whole idea of judging, that you not be judged, 
but then exercising judgment that is not hypocritical, that we would indeed live in a way where I can trust you, that you could come to me and say, brother, I'm worried about the sin in your life. I'm worried about this area in your life. That I can trust that before you would do that, you've examined your own life and you've sought to pursue Christ and walk in holiness. And if I come to you, you can trust me to have done the same. There's two things I think that are helpful in that. Here's the first one is a mirror. The first one is a mirror. If we want to exercise biblical judgment, the first, you can say, necessary tool perhaps is a mirror that we would examine ourselves, that we would have a self-awareness of our own struggles, our own sin. And you think about a passage like 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16 where, where Paul just makes very obvious that he's aware of the depth of his own sin. He knows he calls himself the foremost of sinners in that passage. Paul knew he was sinful. He practiced self-examination. Romans 7, 13 to 25, we see the same thing. That, that, that passage where Paul talks about that which I, I want to do, I don't do, and that which I don't want to do, I do. And he just stares about that struggle and he comes away saying, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, right? In Christ Jesus, Paul is aware of his own battle with sin. He looks and examines himself. Self-examination leads to self-awareness. If we never step back and look in a mirror and ask God to examine us and reveal to us the sin living within us, then we are living in a way that we're not aware of our own sin, our own temptations, our own struggles, and the fact that we need God's daily sanctifying grace. We can't live like that. It's not good for our brothers and sisters. We need to live as those aware of our sin. We need to live as those who are willing to do self-examination before we do cross-examination. The second tool after a mirror is glasses. Glasses. You need a good set of glasses. I see a lot of you wearing glasses this morning. If you take those off, you understand the, the problem that creates, right? Our parking lot would be a disaster for many of you. Well, if you take the lens of Scripture off, then this whole idea of judging is going to be a disaster. We have to have the right glasses on. We have to be able to view things according to God's truth, to have discernment that's couched in, based upon, founded in the word, the truth of God. We have to examine things, discern things based on his truth, not our conviction. See, God's word brings clarity. It helps us make sound judgments. It's what Paul prayed in in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Do you remember that prayer of, of Paul? That he prays that their, their love would abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment, that they might approve what is excellent. Do you remember that? They might approve what is excellent. They might know what is, this is okay, this is excellent. They might know that is bad, this is excellent. Right? They might approve, they'd be able to discern. He prays that, that they would grow in that ability to discern. See, knowing God's word gives you a biblical worldview, and a biblical worldview helps you to see things clearly. It helps you to see the world clearly. It helps you to know right from wrong and know sin from, un, uh, from righteousness. It helps you see that clearly. It helps you see things and understand, and as you walk about the world, as you live your life and see, you know what, that person is created in the image of God. They're image bearer, and they may be absolutely deceived by the, by, the, by the 
the narrative of our culture. They may be living in, in immorality and sin, but they're an image bearer of God and they need the gospel. They need someone to tell them about Christ. They need someone to share the truth. They need someone to share the love of God with them. They need that because they're an image bearer of Christ. We understand that God created. But we also understand why people are the way they are. We understand that because God created and man rebelled, right? Man rebelled against him and sin. that we understand that what's causing the problem is sin. It's not just, well, their opinion versus my opinion. No, sin has caused us to be depraved. We stand depraved. We stand sinful before the Lord. It's affected the way we think. It affects the way we function. Sin has serious consequences. We also remember that hope is not just in some political position. Hope is not just in the way I come in and help in that situation. Hope ultimately, foundationally, is in the gospel. It's in Christ. That he sent forth his son to die for us. That's where hope is found. It helps us, we, we have that biblical worldview, it helps us to see and to function and to see that the people of God are those who are struggling, but they look and their hope is in the Lord. And they're being sanctified day by day. And that means as you are being sanctified, that there are times where you're struggling. There's times where you sin, you act in sin, you, you, you fall to the, the, the temptation of the flesh. And see, if I have used a mirror and I'm examining myself, and I'm doing so with the Word of God, and I've got a clear set of glasses on, the, the Word of God, the worldview, the biblical worldview, then I see, and as I look out and I see you struggling with sin, all the while, I am aware of my own struggle with sin. And I say, listen, the Lord is sanctifying you and working in your life and growing you in the Lord just like He's doing me. And I'm going to come alongside you, and I want you to come alongside me. It doesn't mean we ignore each other's sin. It doesn't mean that we don't ever pass judgment. It, never, it doesn't mean I never look at you and say, brother, that is wrong and that is ungodly and that's sinful. It never means, or it doesn't mean that you never do that to me. But it means that we do so in a way that is loving and gracious and anchored in Scripture. In a way that first takes the log out of our own eye before we worry about the sawdust in another. Listen, as we close, I just want, I want you to consider what lies at the root of this? What lies at the root of this instruction from our Lord? When we think about passages like this and Jesus is talking about judgment, he's talking about sin, what lies at the root of that? See, the, the character of God that lies at the root of that is that God is a holy and a righteous God. He's a holy and a righteous God. And sin cannot be before him. Because he is altogether holy and righteous, he must and he does punish sin. He is a righteous judge, the righteous judge, who judges absolutely on the standard of holiness. And and as we heard earlier in the scripture reading, we all fall short of that. All of us fall short of that. But believers, those of you who are gathered here today, you're believers, you've been redeemed. I want to remind you that you have been redeemed and you've been forgiven by God through the death of Christ on the cross and you know what this did not occur because God said you know what I'm not going to pass judgment on you I don't care that is not why it happened you're not redeemed and saved because God said it didn't matter no it does matter God said I'm absolutely holy I'm absolutely righteous you're sinful you're depraved you're without hope you're without a future You have not received mercy. 
But you're saved and you're redeemed this morning because God saw that and he judged in absolute holiness and righteousness and he knew that there was nothing that you and I could do to save ourselves. So he sent Jesus Christ to die for you. And on the cross, as Christ stands or hangs there and he dies, he suffers and he dies in our place, he does so and you see the absolute justice and holiness of God as the wrath of the Father is poured out on the Son. And you see his holiness, you see his justice, you see his perfect judgment, but you see his mercy and you see his love displayed. The love of God goes greater far. You see that. That's why. The reason that you're saved and you're redeemed, the reason that we come and we're going to gather around the Lord's Supper in a few moments, believers, is because God is just, He is holy, He is righteous, and He does judge, but He has judged us on account of the blood of Christ shed for us, that we have trusted Him, we've repented, and we've turned to Him, and He has redeemed us and saved us from sin. And so we no longer stand the penalty of sin to pay the price that we deserve, because Christ has paid that price for us. And so we're going to come in a minute and we're going to remember that. We're going to celebrate that, what Christ did on the cross for us. For those of you who are unbelievers, I would just encourage you as this happens, as we gather and we partake of the Lord's Supper in a few moments, I want you to just be reminded and think about the fact that, that God is righteous, God is holy, God is just. And it is not our place. We don't come here and we're not looking at you and we're not just casting judgment upon you. At the same time, you need to know that you stand condemned before God Almighty because you're a sinner and you've rebelled against Him. He does indeed judge because He is holy and He is righteous. What would you expect Him to do? If He's not holy and He's not righteous then okay but he is holy and righteous if he's not holy and righteous i'm not worshiping him be like worshiping one of you guys i'm not gonna do that but god is holy and righteous he is just he is worthy of worship and everyone outside of christ stands condemned by their own sin before him by your own sin and so what i I would appeal to you if you're an unbeliever I would appeal to you to realize that you stand condemned before God Almighty. And I would appeal to you and beg of you and ask of you to turn from your sin, to repent of your sin, and to trust Christ alone for salvation. Trust Christ alone. It's by faith alone you're saved. Turn to Him today. See, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And those of you who are unbelievers, we'd ask you as we do this to just let it pass right by you. There's no shame in that. That's just honesty. Of you saying, you know what, I'm not a believer. I'm not going to partake of this. But as we do that, we're, we're going to have a little piece of bread and some juice to the vine. As we do that, that reminds us as believers of the body of Christ that was broken for us and his blood that was poured out on our behalf that saves us. And we want you to see that. It's a picture, it's a display of the gospel. We want you to see that and consider that this morning. Let's pray as our deacons come forward to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Father, we, we're so grateful, God, for your word, 
We're grateful for the way, God, that you have preserved it through the years that we could come to this moment and study it and read it and consider what it means in our life. God, we're thankful that you gave us clear instruction that, God, we are not to be those who walk around with this hypercriticism, this judgmental attitude and heart. But, God, we are indeed to be those who practice discernment. To show that we can see the difference between right and wrong, what is sin and what is righteous. And so, God, I pray that we would indeed do that that we would be those who judge rightly based on your word, your truth, your measure. God, I pray for those who are gathered today who are unbelievers, God, who stand condemned before you because they have violated your holy law just like I did and everyone else gathered here, we did. God, I pray that you would do a great work of salvation in their lives. God, bring life to their dead hearts. God, please work in them. That they would respond, Lord, and respond in faith, repentance. And God, the rest of us, as we gather, God, I pray, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that you would bless this meal. God, that you would bless this time, that we would use this as a time to examine our own lives. Examine do we have a log sticking out of our own eye? Do we have sin in our lives that we need to repent of? God, I pray that as we do this, we would remember the beauty of the cross, the perfect display of your justice, your holiness, your wrath with your mercy and your grace and your love. God, you are a great and a merciful God. We worship you in this moment. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.